0: Hello and welcome to Stuck in the 90s. We are your weekly nostalgia podcast dedicated to chronicling the years 1999 from 1990. We are your hosts. My name is Connor Thompson. And my name's Chris Elphick. The mic is upside down and so
1: are we. Well, we're right side up. Oh, we've got a mic stand, we've got a shock mount. It's like we've been doing this for over a month. Yeah, exactly. We're uh we're moving up to
0: February twenty sixteen in uh in podcaster skill.
1: Holy fuck It's finally almost February. No one actually says this excitedly. By the time you listen to this, it might be February, depending on how we how slow we are to edit. January's been long. January's been a long goddamn month. So we're not gonna talk about any stuff that happened in January. Fuck that. We're over it. We're on to Feb. Uh the month of love the month of groundhogs the month that doesn't quite fit into the song about how many days there are in each month that's true yeah it's except like, for february which has which 28 is, that's yeah like awful. everyone
0: and i feel like every time you hear it someone kind of shoehorns it in a different way it's garbage yeah exactly this week we're going to talk a little bit about the beginning of the decade and a little bit from the end including hit clips which we did not have time or effort for last week And also uh, some other stuff. In February of 91, a little thing thing popped onto floppy disks around the world or around America. And that was called AOL for DOS. It was released. And it sent the everyman into a beveryman. Bevery stands for beverage. I mean, onto the internet. So that's worth talking about. But also on February
1: 6th, Capcom released Street Fighter 2 for arcade systems. Ooh, classic. Yeah. Also this week on the 7th, the Provisional Irish Republican Army launches a mortar attack on 10 Downing Street during a cabinet meeting. That's right, the IRA shelled the residence of the Prime Minister in the 90s, the British Prime Minister, not Canadian. That's pretty fucked, super fucked actually. Uh we won't be getting into that this week though.
0: Or maybe ever. I feel like we're not we're not British enough to be covering the troubles.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I think I agree with that. Yeah. Um, At the end of the decade, sometime in 1999, the world was introduced to one of the crappiest music players of all time that somehow managed to defile odds and become not only popular, but actually kind of cool. And as you know, or at very least suspect, we are talking about Hit Clips. Yeah, we bumped them from last week. They are back uh, this week and we'll be getting to that. Uh, but first, I think we should check in with this week's sponsor. Stuck in the 90s is brought to you by Vandalay Industries, a producer of latex and latex-related products, importing, exporting... And the latest rumors indicate that they may expand into the world of architecture. That's uh, very interesting. I know. You know. If
0: I would have thought anything, I thought be. I thought it would be marine biology. Wow. So anyway, Vandalay Industries is seeking a new member to join their growing team. If you have experience in sales, then we invite you to send your resume for the exciting position of a latex salesperson. Please send all emails to Arthur at VandalayIndustries.com with the subject title. I want to be your latex salesman. Wow, what a unique opportunity. Yeah. So that is Vandalay Industries and Arthur at VandalayIndustries.com. Arthur at VandalayIndustries.com.
1: Hell of a guy. Say Vandalay Industries. All right, let's do a little bit of 90s news now. Um, You know what? I'm not going to read that. You're going to read that because I don't know what that means. (laughs) And... I'm not falling into this trap.
0: All right. So, yeah, I didn't really do much research on this besides reading an article, but Barney the Dinosaur, the actor who played him, now runs a tantric sex business. Of course he does. Yeah. So the actor, uh, David Joyner, uh, runs a business that is described as a tantric massage specialist and spiritual healer. Uh, he was responsible for playing the purple dinosaur from 1991 to 2001. Interesting maybe more on this later cuz yeah there's a lot there's a lot in this article but yeah he is a tantric sex guru when i
1: get that feeling i need spiritual healing i love you spiritual you healing. love me we're a happy family oh god okay fuck that noise i can't i can't deal with that right now yeah let's get down to business let's pop in the first 5 and a quarter inch floppy disk and turn that little lever to lock it in place and get online. AOL, America Online, began in 1983 as a short-lived venture called Control Video Corporation, or CVC, founded by Bill von Meister, which is a dope name. It's
0: pretty, pretty, pretty good. Pretty von thing.
1: anything is. Oh, I know, right? Yeah. Its sole product was an online service called GameLine for the Atari 2600 video game console. So subscribers bought a modem from the company for fifty dollars US and paid a one-time fifteen dollars setup fee. GameLine permitted subscribers to temporarily download games and keep track of high scores at the reasonable cost of $1 US per game.
0: Yeah, that's not bad. So in May of 1983, Jim Kimsey became a manufacturing consultant for Control Video, which at the time was near bankruptcy. In early 85, Von Meister left the company and on the 24th of May 1985, Quantum Computer Services, an online services company, was founded by Jim Kimsey from the remnants of Control Video Corporation. Kimsey
1: changed the company's strategy and in 85 launched a dedicated online service for Commodore 64 and Commodore 128 computers, originally called Quantum Link. Now we're starting to get into things I've heard of. By May of 88, Quantum and Apple launched Apple Link Personal Edition for the Apple II and Macintosh computers. In August of the same year, Quantum launched PC Link, a service for IBM-compatible PCs. Alright, so let's
0: forward to the 90s. In February of 91, AOL for DOS was launched, and followed a year later by AOL for Windows. This coincided with the growth in uh, pay-based online services like Prodigy, CompuServe, and something I hadn't heard of called Genie. That's from General Electric. That is
1: fantastic and awful. I know.
0: During the early 90s, the average subscription lasted for about 25 months and accounted for $350 in total revenue. Advertisements invited modem owners to try America Online free, promising free software and trial membership in September of 93, AOL added Usenet access to its features. This is commonly referred to as the Eternal September, which is something that's really neat and will have its own episode at some point. Yeah, definitely.
1: So this also coincided with a new carpet bombing marketing campaign by CMO Jan Brandt as to distribute as many free AOL trial disks as possible through non-conventional distribution partners, um, like maybe your local dollar store now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at one point 50 of cds produced worldwide had an aol logo holy shit yeah like we're obviously this is the early 90s so worldwide cd production uh, is not
0: this is mid- i mean because the early 90s they would have been yeah. floppies mostly i think yeah
1: true so like worldwide cd production isn't booming but it's That's not probably... small
0: it's i mean think about each person releasing an album they're producing at least a thousand of those
1: yeah this is a staggering feat mm-hmm. AOL quickly obviously surpassed genie awful yep. and by the mid 90s it passed prodigy which for several years allowed AOL advertising uh, as well as CompuServe so AOL
0: charged uh, its users an hourly fee until December of 96 when the company changed to a flat monthly rate of 1995 during this time AOL connections would be flooded with users trying to get on and many canceled their accounts due to con- constant busy signals because you had to dial up at the time a commercial featuring ceo steve case telling people aol was working day and night to fix the problems was made within three years aol's user base grew to 10 million people hey it's like the first two weeks of pokemon go everyone was playing and no
1: one could get on womp womp so 1997 rolls around and about half of all u.s homes with internet had access through aol this is like the market share 50% is insane to think about today. There are so many different ISPs out there.
0: Yeah, now it's uh, 50% with like Verizon and 50% with
1: Comcast. Zing! During this time AOL's content channels under Jason Skeen included news, sports and entertainment. Um, And they experienced their greatest growth as AOL became the dominant online service internationally with more than 34 million subscribers. In November of 1998 AOL announced it would acquire Netscape which was a big web browser Netscape Navigator. Yeah. So at the height of its popularity, it
0: purchased the media conglomerate Time Warner in the largest merger in US history. AOL's membership peaked sometime in 2002 and then began a rapid decline partly due to the decline of dial-up uh, as users switched over to broadband. Interestingly, according to AOL's quarterly earnings uh on May 8th, 2015, 2.1 million people still use AOL's, AOL's dial-up service.
1: And we we talked about this a while ago, but uh, we don't really know how many, but a, a tremendous number of them are probably people who have had this on autopay and just forgot about it.
0: Oh yeah, probably. And other than that, maybe some rural people who rural people who were probably not able to get even DSL or anything, or just maybe are old and just, I don't know, maybe they're used
1: to dial up. Looking back at AOL, there's a few things to consider about the service that just seems kind of unusual uh, compared to today. AOL was developed in a time before websites and was released around the same time as the first web browser. There were no websites in the way that we think of them now at the time. So what that meant was that people used the internet for bulletin board services and Usenet news groups. Many servers connected to the internet were located at universities and research facilities, and it generally took some level of technical knowledge to use the internet, at least effectively, back at this time.
0: Yeah, exactly. There were no web browsers. It was a different landscape than it was today. So AOL and its contemporaries, such as Prodigy and CompuServe, changed this by presenting an easy-to-use graphical user interface with images, buttons, colors, a whole bunch of things that were accessible for regular people. It was a safe place for beginners on the internet. AOL launched initially with no web browser because there was no web to browse. The content available on AOL... Uh, for users was whatever AOL wanted you to see. News, stories, games, your mail. It was all through AOL and its
1: restrictive sort of walled garden approach to the internet. However, this same approach soon made it the target of tech-savvy people who objected to its restrictive uh, approach to the web and derided the inexperience of its user base. AOL was considered internet training wheels, says branding consultant Rob Frankel. That's perfect. That's pretty great. It offered a closed system on the web. It had mainframes that cached the web and offered people uh, appropriate pages. AOL thought it could keep people
0: captive. They couldn't. By the end of the 90s, even non-technical users were becoming comfortable exploring the web and discovering that other ISPs would give them unlimited access to the information superhighway. And yeah, that was pretty much it. Like, I think AOL... Do you remember Neopets? Fondly. It's kind of like that. Like, you have all these little pictures and you can click on certain things but you're just limited to what is
1: there if, it's a single site it feels like a big open world but it's really easy to see where the walls are it's like when when truman sees that he's living in the bubble yeah like that's what it feels like like it looks the like boat a boat out beyond. and then reaches yeah, and he touches the wall yeah maybe maybe we'll move on to something a little bit cooler
0: Yeah. Oh, first, I just want to mention one thing about the CDs. I remember when I was working at Burger King in the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had AOL for kids CDs. I had like dozens of these. I think I just used them as Frisbees at some point. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have that experience. If you were lucky, in the early part of the 90s, you had the floppy disks, which I believe you you could just
1: write over those. So you got, you know... Kind of got free shit. Free shit. So now let's move on to something a little bit cooler. Still in 1991, on February 6th, Capcom released their second Street Fighter arcade game, Street Fighter 2, The World Warrior. Dope title. Oh, yeah. Street Fighter 2 improves upon the many concepts introduced in the first game, including the use of command-based special moves and a six-button configuration, while offering players a selection of multiple playable characters instead of just Ryu or Ken for player two, each with their own unique fighting style, and introducing a combo system and competitive multiplayer combat between two players. Neat. So the original Street Fighter 2 featured
0: a roster of eight playable characters that could be selected by the player. The roster included initially Ryu and Ken from the original Street Fighter, plus six new characters of different nationalities. Oh, that's nice. In the single player tournament, the player faces off against the other seven main characters before uh, proceeding to fight the final opponents, which are four non-selectable CPU controlled opponents known as the Grand Masters. So uh, we'll take it away with Ryu, a Japanese
1: karateka seeking to hone his skills. Ooh, E. Honda, one of my favorite characters to play as, who was a sumo wrestler from Japan. Yeah.
0: Blanca, a beast-like mutant from Brazil who was raised in the jungle. I didn't know that backstory. Did you pronounce
1: this guile or gil or guile. gile? Guile? Okay, yeah. I did too. I've heard other people say gile. and like, no, that's a ghillie suit. I've heard people say snass. People are stupid. Guile, a former USAF special forces operative from the United States seeking to defeat the man who killed his best friend. Oh, man. Also uh, portrayed by
0: Jean-Claude Van Damme Best. in the movie. Uh, Ken, Ryu's rival and former
1: training partner from the U.S. of A. And then Chun-Li, a Chinese martial artist who works as an Interpol officer seeking to avenge her deceased father. She is also the only female character. Hmm. And then Zangief, a pro wrestler from the USSR. And Dalsum, a fire-breathing yoga master from India who was my second favorite character to play. That's
0: interesting uh i mean yeah was it
1: racist no okay just very stereotypical there you go yeah right right and like he breathes fire chill guys chill k Tumblr, settle down gandhi breathed fire as far as we know
0: all right and now on to the cpu exclusive grandmaster characters we'll start it off with balrog an american boxer uh designed
1: with a similar appearance to mike tyson so good. Go back and play this. Yeah. Uh, then there was Vega, who is a Spanish torero who wields a claw and uses a unique style of ninjutsu. The Spanish ninjutsu, of course. Well. Uh
0: Followed by Saget. Bob, Bob Saget. Saget. Damn it. <gasps> we did it. <laughs> this is the
1: first time we did it.
0: Okay, go on. That just happened. Yes. He's a Muay Thai kickboxer and former World Warrior champion from the original Street Fighter who was scarred by Ryu in the
1: end of the previous tournament. And then there's M Bison, the leader oh, the of the Yeah, right. The leader of the criminal organization, Shadaloo, which sounds more fun than it is, who uses a mysterious power known as Psycho Power, and he is the final opponent in the game. Yeah. So the American boxer known as Balrog in the international versions,
0: as we said, was designed sort of after Mike Tyson. And originally he was named M. Bison. He was the original M. Bison, which was short for Mike Bison. While Vega and M. Bison uh, originally referred to Balrog and Vega respectively, when Street Fighter II was localized for the overseas markets, The names of these bosses were rotated, fearing that the boxers' similarities to Tyson could have led
1: to a likeness infringement lawsuit. I didn't know that. No, I didn't know it either. Um, The game's controls used the configuration of an eight-directional joystick and six attack buttons. The player used the joystick to jump, crouch, and move the character toward or away from the opponent, uh, as well as to guard the character from an opponent's attacks. There are three punch buttons and three kick buttons of differing strength and speed; those being light, medium, and heavy. And if you're anything like me, you didn't care about that and just jammed on the controller until you won.
0: Oh yeah, I actually didn't know until
1: researching this that what the buttons did. Oh god, hit the buttons. Oh, I knew what what they did. I just didn't have the dexterity to make them combo. Yeah, that's a good excuse. Yeah. The success of Street Fighter 2 is credited with starting the fighting game boom during the 90s, which inspired other game developers to produce their own franchises, popularizing the genre and setting off a renaissance for the arcade game industry in the early 90s. The game is widely considered among critics to be one of the greatest fighting games of all time, as well as one of the greatest video games, period. Of All time. All time. It was then ported to the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, which is not known as SNES and is called the SNES, for which it became a long-lasting system seller. Its success led to a sub-series of updated versions, each offering additional features and characters over previous versions, as well as several home versions, and the movie. We should watch the movie. We should just talk about, like, the
0: movie deserves its own episode at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, we're going to end this week towards the end of the 90s with Hit Clips. So as we mentioned before, somehow in 1999, a toy that played about a minute of, this is quoted from an article, ultra lo-fi music, yeah, managed to generate uh, astronomical popularity. So, Hit Clips were first distributed by McDonald's when they released music by NSYNC and Britney Spears. Uh, According to Wikipedia, in 1999, Hit Clips earned Tiger Electronics approximately $80 million. So, Tiger Electronics had licensing agreements for Hit Clips with popular major record labels like Atlantic Records, Jive, Zomba Label Group and Capitol Records. So they were first promoted by McDonald's as we said, Radio Disney, and apparently Lunchables. So during the writing of this, I decided to watch one of those McDonald's ads featuring NSYNC and Britney Spears, and so much of my cynicism for this pile of garbage melted away. I was filled with kind of a calmness and a bliss, I'm not making this up, and it just kind of washed over me as Britney Spears' Stronger scored the first half of the commercial. That also means that this is from the year 2000. Still, the wave of nostalgia is undeniable. Stop
1: the fucking presses.
0: That's something that makes no sense in a
1: podcast, but we're about to unearth. But actually, what the shit? Yeah, we're going to. So Hit Clips were not a 90s toy. Yeah. This is what you're saying. Yeah, that's, that's what we're getting to. What do you fucking mean? Hit Clips come up on every goddamn list of, like, best of the 90s. Remember your favorite 90s toys? Oh, yeah. They're on all of them. There's BuzzFeed
0: articles. I found an article on Business Insider that said, you know, oh, favorite
1: favorite shit from the 90s. They didn't say shit, though. So despite the line in their Wikipedia article, in 1999, Hit Clips earned Tiger Electronics approximately $80 million. The source makes no mention of the year 1999 at all. The NSYNC and Britney, McDonald's ads, all feature music from their No Strings Attached and Oops, I Did It Again albums, both released in the year 2000. Looking at the list of songs released for Hit Clips, there's definitely a minority of 90 songs on there. In the list of approximately 100 songs for this goddamn little piece of shit, there are less than 10. That were from the late 90s, as far as we can see. And that was the time that this device purportedly launched. Yeah, so it there, doesn't add up.
0: There should be more 90, 1999 songs. There's a couple, but not many. And there's so many articles that list this. And... Yeah, nothing really to back this up. The earliest mention that we can find for Hit Clips is regarding the McDonald's promotion from August of 2000. A Newsweek article refers to a series of cryptic commercials showing, quote, employees dancing to NSYNC for no obvious reason. There's also a spin-the-bottle commercial, which ends with the words Britney and NSYNC together on August 4th with a spinning McDonald's logo. Also, Lance Bass spins the bottle... And it lands on Justin.
1: Ooh. Foreshadowing? Foreshadowing.
0: There's another one uh, with the words, The music is coming 8-4, August 4th, at McDonald's with a Golden Arch. Both of these have the opening to Oops, I Did It Again playing, a song recorded in November of 99, but not released until March of 2000. So unless we hear
1: some pretty compelling evidence that hit clips were around in the 90s, I think we've, we've made it pretty safe to say that they're not a 90s toy.
0: Yeah, they, I I would love to hear if someone has any kind of proof otherwise, but we couldn't find it.
1: But why? Why do we believe this? What has made so many people, ourselves included, think that hit clips are from the 90s and just accept that into your hearts? It's a conspiracy by Tiger Electronics to claim their crappy device was around for a whole extra year. No, it's not. that. That's probably not it. Did Nostalgia content creators feel the need to include it on their list of, you know, best of the 90s? Because it seems like it's too shitty to be from the 2000s. Is it just too early for 2000s nostalgia? Maybe.
0: I don't know. I think this ties into a topic that I've been thinking of since probably not long after we started the podcast. We're going to touch on it very briefly now, and I want everyone to kind of think about this because we'll likely revisit it at some point, some point in the future.
1: I want to know, when did the 90s truly end? The obvious answer, and what I think we both believe to be the incorrect one, is December 31st, 1999, because that's literally when the 90s ended. But if the 90s are more like a feeling in your heart, then I think you know that the 90s ended sometime in early 2002. (laughs) there's a lot of there's a lot of different
0: i think this is yeah it's a discussion and i think for everyone it may have ended at a different time and that's we're not just making this up according to the seinfeld episode uh the millennium in its eighth season uh newman's party is on the wrong date because to quote jerry seinfeld as everyone knows since there was no year zero the millennium doesn't begin until the
1: year 2001 so that's another possibility and culturally just like Uh, With concepts like generations, it's hard to say exactly when a decade begins or a decade ends. So we'll throw out another few dates that we think could be the real end of the 90s. May 15th or July 24th, 2001, these are the dates that NSYNC released their single, Pop, and their album, Celebrity. I think that's pivotal for
0: reasons that we will get into when we revisit this.
1: Boy bands are a fair measurement of this, maybe. Uh, May 18th, 1999 was the date that the Backstreet Boys released their album, millennium which i mean maybe maybe that's when the new millennium started what else do we have on here november 16th 1999 this is the best one which is when will smith released Millennium, as we are millennials and we've got two more here may 31st 2000 the date survivor premiered because that is a 2000 show
0: exactly like- that's
1: that might be the most legit and the last one is september 11th 2001 for obvious reasons we don't need to state
0: Yeah, there's some more too, like the Bush Gore election. And, you know, I'd like to hear from you what what you think the end of the 90s was, because this maybe that'll be our final maybe that'll be our final podcast. Ooh, when we think the 90s ended. Yeah. When did the 90s end? That's my that might be what we sign off with.
1: Well, I can tell you that this episode of this particular 90s podcast is coming to an end.
0: Yeah, I think uh, we don't really have much to add next week. I think we're going to talk about Mario 3 because am so so excited! Uh, february of 1990 i think i
1: don't know if i've repeatedly beat a video game any more than super mario 3
0: i've never beaten super mario 3 but more That's on insane. that next week
1: as far as replay value goes it's way up there
0: yeah so as always you can check us out online stuck in the 90s podcast.com facebook.com slash stuck in the 90s podcast twitter sit 90s instagram stuck in the 90s podcast you guys you guys know how it is do you want to be a 10 dollars sponsor we'll take tacos I'd love some tacos. $10 worth. Man, I'd really like some tacos. Stuck in the 90s podcast at gmail.com. We'll talk, Su- we'll talk great things about your tacos.
1: Subject line tacos. Yeah. That's all I wanted to add in. That's and, all, that's all yeah. I got. Uh, okay. Well, I don't know. I don't have anything else to add. Okay. Hit clips um, aren't from the 90s. Hit clips aren't fucked. from the 90s. Yeah. Insane.
0: Well, we'll see you guys next week. For now. The podcast
1: is, is now. No Hit clips. Nah, nah. nah. We didn't do it. It should have been Bob Saget. Fuck.